0: from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 12-23. through School-age children, if you don't have your Bible with you, there's the blue Bibles in front of you. Turn to page 148 and follow along with me. 2 Samuel 6, 12 12-23. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the house, household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom, To the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the household of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord, and shouting, with shouting, and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his own house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. So ends the reading of God's word. Children ages 18 months through kindergarten may choose to go to Little Landing now.
1: Good morning, faith family at the Landing. Let's pray one more time and seek God's help as we turn to Second Samuel 6. Father in heaven, I bow before you, asking for your help now to take this very sober, An even painful passage and make plain the good word you have for the precious faith family at the landing. I ask for your help, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and give gifts of speaking and of hearing. Increase our faith. Purify our worship. Unite ourselves together. Our inner and outer man and our body and us with you. Draw near to my wife as she's at my mother-in-law's bedside. Give them a peace that settles over St. Mary's Ascension. Draw near to others who wish they could be here but are elsewhere. Draw near, I pray, to Tori, Franzen, Mercy, Share, and the team from Lakeview Christian Academy as they're probably in worship together down in Northeast Mexico right now. Protect them, keep them healthy. Bless them as they serve the orphanage and others there. Draw near to Ron Gonzalez as he brings the message and proclaims the word of God at Palisade Baptist up in Silver Bay. Right now, today. And many others have gone out for the sake of the name from among our number or that we can link arms with and say, Lord, bless, pour out your spirit pour out your presence, give power to the word, open hearts, save the lost, strengthen the believers, build your church and glorify spirit, your name, the name of the son and the name of the father. We love you so much, Jesus. Speak now from second Samuel six. Our ears are open and your servants are listening for the honor and glory of Christ and for the increase of our joy. I pray. Amen. Are you a phony? Am I a phony? Biggest question you're probably facing, even though you don't know it. Odd way to start a sermon, you think? It is a deep question. Christians are constantly being told that we're phonies. We're constantly being told that we're we're fake. We're constantly being told that we're praying just to the air. And that like every other religion, the religious leader we pray to is actually in the grave somewhere. And and we're fooled of the highest order to pray to a man who lived 2,000 years ago. And they think, surely is dead now. Are we a phony and that the the outside of my life doesn't match the inside of my life? You know what Shalom is? Shalom is when the inside of who I am and my convictions matches the outside of my behavior. That's that peace of God that proves beyond the shadow of a doubt. I'm no phony. I'm real. David here in Second Samuel six that Kevin just read was accused by his wife, Mikal, that he's a phony. Isn't it sometimes most painful when the people nearest to you within your household call you a fake? It cuts the deepest. David lives out the authentic life of faith before God in front of us. Sure, there are demonic forces saying you are a phony, you're not forgiven. The gospel is false. God doesn't love you. Sure, there are people out in the world saying you're fools for believing in a dead man. Jesus Christ isn't risen from the dead and reigning on the at the father's right hand. You're praying to a non-existent person. Surely there are doubts that rise up within our own hearts. Surely there are doubts about God and his ways and his goodness and his plans for us. And David here on direct refuting and rebuttal to his wife, Michal, he lives out the authentic life of faith. It's actually on display in a beautiful picture here. And I want to show you how I I studied this passage. I want to show you how I arrived at this great answer of King David standing firmly and boldly, even with all his might in front of all Israel, in front of the eyes of God, and in front of a wife who despises him. He stood firm in the authentic Christian life. I began by recognizing that there's been a layering of breakthroughs. Do you remember this when we studied this in chapter five on? There was first the breakthroughs where God broke in and he gave David victory against the Philistines. That was the first set of breakthroughs. But then David decides, I'm going to bring the ark of God up on an ark, on a cart with an ox towing it and men handling it who aren't called by God to do so. And as soon as one sets out his hand to touch the ark to steady it, instantly that one dies. His name was Uzzah. But it was David who was in the wrong. It wasn't Uzzah or his brother or his father's job to know exactly what the Bible says. It was David's job as king to say, let's bring the ark of God up into the city of God, Jerusalem, the way he says it should happen. He disobeyed the word. And we have every evidence and confidence that he knew exactly what Numbers chapter four and chapter seven say. So, the question isn't just how did Uzzah die? The question is why did David die? How come David was allowed to live? Why did God show such, such stunning mercy and kindness to David? David said God broke through and he caused the death of Uzzah. So now there's a second breakthrough. And yet David now becomes angry and he becomes fearful and he says, I don't want the ark of the presence of God near me or the people of God. Can you imagine a leader saying, I don't want your presence with us, God? We're sending you and your ark away. David needed another breakthrough. And that breakthrough was in the hardness and anger of his own heart. Do not think for one second that if you could just change everyone around you, everything would go fine. Don't fix Michal. That's not the issue here. David's having a breakthrough within his own heart. If you read First Chronicles 15 and 16 uh, recounting the exact same event, you would realize that David actually had, during the three months that the ark was sent away to a Gentile's home, Obed-Edom, And bless that home, as God always does. David was having a third breakthrough, and this third breakthrough was where he was reading the word of God, and he said to the people of God, let's go back and let's live out the commands of God. Let's bring the ark in by appointed members of the Levite tribe with poles on their shoulders so that they're not touching the ark. And let's carry it along with sacrifices going out before it, because God has mercifully shown his kindness and love to us. He's just killed Uzzah, and Uzzah's life is not in vain. We have learned to live in obedience To the God who loves us and is patient and merciful with us. And David then had a third breakthrough in which he comes before the Lord and he says, You have forgiven me. You have shown kindness to Obed-Edom who housed the ark for three months. Now you're showing kindness to all of us, to Israel, and we're bringing you and the presence that you symbolize in the ark back into Jerusalem. So David regathers the ark and all the people back into Jerusalem. And God's blessing is restored to David and to the people of Israel and to the city of David. But can you imagine what it would have been like for David to walk by Uzzah's grave? Can you imagine what it would have been like for David to look eye to eye into Uzzah's wife's face? Or his children's face. Or his father or brother's face. David is not unaware, nor are we unaware of the complexity and the pain of the Christian life. Oh, how much we've been forgiven, but the consequences of our past sin, the sin for which we are forgiven, linger on and we have to have the capacity to move forward with authenticity. How do we not let the consequences of our past sin not constantly tell us we're just a phony and we're faking it? David doesn't miss the complexity of following in faith after God through Christ. He knows, like Paul says to the Corinthians, we are always sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We weep with those who weep, we rejoice with those who rejoice, sometimes at the same time. We know enough of honor never to cheapen by mixing the two. Somewhere, a cancer diagnosis strikes and at the same moment, somewhere else, a new baby is born. Somewhere, the evils of war are being plotted and at the same time, somewhere else, a new church is being planted. How do God's people, believers in Jesus Christ, filled by his Holy Spirit, live out mature, authentic faith in Jesus Christ when there's terrible sorrows on one hand and stunning joys on the other hand? I found the answer as I studied and read through this passage multiple times, probably 15 times. And I started to notice the phrase repeated most often, maybe you noticed it as Kevin was reading it, is before the Lord. Before the Lord in Hebrew, it's before the face of the Lord. It's really an under translation to just say before the Lord, it is before the Lord, but it's meaning rich and packed with the dense, sweet reality that it's before the face of the Lord. That's what's in the original Hebrew. Hebrew. Five times that phrase shows up in the passage Kevin read out of 2 Samuel 6, beginning in verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Five times the last two are really of the same event. So I have four observations looking at this phrase before the face of the Lord. This is in answer to the question that David shows us. How do you stay white hot in your in your your self-worth before God in in your worship before God and in your witness before God. How do you lead Israel? How do you step out in boldness when your wife doesn't even think you're a, you're real? She thinks you're a phony and she calls you vulgar. When someone precious and near to you has the eyes of their hearts blinded from seeing the glory of God. We'll see Michal herself represents much more her father Saul than she does her husband David. I've put these observations about the phrase before the face of the Lord under four headings. And I'll give you the four. If you want to, you can make a mental note of them or write them down. I'm going to talk about these four things very briefly as ways of showing us how to live out this authentic Christian faith in God that David has. Here's the four words freedom, precious freedom, unfettered, feasting, and favor. Freedom, unfettered, feasting, and favor. Look at verse 14. David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. It's a signal of this tremendous freedom David had because of the breakthroughs he went through. As a forgiven priest, that's what the linen ephod means. As a forgiven priest, we dance before the face of the Lord. In fact, like David, we are ministering before the face of the Lord with with an offering of our lives that signals a passionate dance. Way back in 1 Samuel, chapter two, you might remember Samuel was a young boy and he was ministering before the Lord with the purity of a young child. A boy clothed with a linen ephod, the verse says, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. So here's the very same words in 1 Samuel, 2. You might remember this sweet picture of young Samuel, the one who ultimately anointed David ministering freely before the Lord in purity and in honor and in power and in beauty. He, too, is clothed with a linen ephod. He, too, is making sacrifices. And he, too, is ministering before the Lord, just like David, with all his might. It's a beautiful picture of David rejoicing in the forgiveness he has. You and I pause for a moment and we say, we just sang it several times. I'm forgiven. I have sins cleansed. I have the joy of the Lord. There is nothing that God remembers against me, even though I have all kinds of consequences of sin in my past. He remembers them against me no more. Do you ever think about that? God looks at the consequences that your sin caused and he says, Those consequences are not going to be cause for my condemnation of you, but cause for my redemption of you. I'm going to turn those. You know, God does this. He always uses sin sinlessly. He always uses your sin sinlessly. And he takes and and prepares and redeems even the horrible, difficult consequences of your sin in the past. The sin you've now been forgiven of. He's doing that for David here, and David is overwhelmed, he's thrilled, he's dancing before the Lord with all his might. Surely you should have a forgiveness in your heart knowing God loves you that causes you to want to dance. Now, you don't want to see me dance, and I'm not sure I want to see you dance. But is there not something in your life where you say, oh, I want to show the extravagant overflow and lavish wonder that's in my heart for such a God-forgiving one like me? But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Not just making an offer of an eternal redemption, but securing it. Here, Christ is on behalf of us in the lead like David is in the lead, only he's leading David as well. And he's the one going out and with great joy before the Lord, he's worshiping the Lord. When did Christ himself, the, the greater David, worship the Lord most highly and most fully? He did so when he offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross. And then he says, I am in leading My people, by dying on the cross, I am thereby leading them in worship so that they might have a a dance filled joy in the forgiveness I purchased for them. He says in Hebrews chapter two, quoting Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So you've got to pause and, and, and wonder, can my heart hear Jesus leading the singing over the landing? Can you hear Jesus leading the singing over the Russian church or the Ukrainian church, the Palestinian or Israeli church? Do you hear the voice of Christ leading genuine believers all around the world and throughout time, even when they're in places of spiritual attack, being told that they're phonies or or attacks by others lying about them or even attacks from within? I love David here on display. Happy to dance before the Lord, fully forgiven, having had all these breakthroughs. He wants the very face of God who's looking down with favor upon him and he living his life right openly before the face of God to be a a worship moment where he dances freely with all his might before the Lord. That leads to the second observation of being before the Lord and living the authentic Christian life. It comes from verse 16. I've, I've entitled it unfettered. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. David is foreshadowing the worship of Christ, the worship and song leading of Christ that happens in the heavens and shall happen for eternity And yet his wife, Michal, is not out among the crowd. She's not cheering with a tambourine. She's not joining in with her husband. She's back in the palace and she's looking from a window. Why is she so filled with hatred for David? Why does she despise him? The word used for despise here in verse 16 is the strongest Hebrew word for hatred or disdain that there is. It's the exact same word and the exact same verbal form that Isaiah, the prophet uses in Isaiah 53, 3. He, Christ, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Why is she hiding her face from David? Why is she hating what he's doing? We'll see in a moment. She's deeply fettered, deeply bound by unbelief. You notice the details of verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Now Jerusalem is entitled... Several times before this, but now clearly said again the city of David. David is the king over all united Israel. David is God's anointed and chosen king. This city in which the ark is coming is the city of David. Notice he's called King David, he's given the full and unashamed title, King David. And he's leaping and dancing. There's the phrase again before the Lord. But notice the title given to Michal, the daughter of Saul. We already know she's the daughter of Saul. We don't need to be told she's the daughter of Saul. Why are you telling us she's the daughter of Saul? Because she's acting way more like her father than she is like her husband. Is she... Angry at David because she's jealous. David now has several other wives. They have children. She has none. Is she dealing with jealousy? Possibly. Is she angry because he took her back from the man she was living with back in 2 Samuel 3? Does that mean she felt manipulated and devalued and even used? We don't know. What we can tell is that the writer is exposing for us that there's an unbelief rising in Michal that says, You, David, if you were more like my my father, you wouldn't act this way. I'm ashamed of you. I not only hate you, I hate the worship of your God. She's fettered with unbelief. She's gripped by it. She has the same attitude against his all his might dancing, his, his extravagant public praise of God for his forgiveness and the breakthroughs he's achieved in his life. He, she, she hates all of that the very same way in centuries later, Judas would despise Mary for coming in before Jesus, J- Jesus entered Jerusalem and breaking pure, costly, fragrant ointment over Jesus in worship. And we're told in John chapter 12, Judas Hated Mary for that. He said she should have preserved all of that ointment and its wealth for the poor. But John makes explicit Judas was just interested in the money for himself. There lies a a dark fettering of unbelief. Inside every one of us and it lurks to try to cause us to be ashamed of extravagant worship to be ashamed of God and the bold statements he may call us to make but I'm holding out to you the purity the honesty the authenticity that you want to live in is the authenticity that says deep in my heart I have convictions about who Jesus is and my life is on display. My authenticity is to say, Lord, if you give me the opportunity, I will speak boldly for you. I will bear witness to you and I will speak vertically to you in worship for all that you are for me in Jesus Christ. I remember I went to a conference one time with a a, a group of brothers and sisters from Bethlehem Baptist Church. We went out to a California church and the conference had much to do with the Holy Spirit. And one of the speakers said, Totally dedicate your life to Christ so that your private and your public life match and that you will offer to your life everything about yourself as a offering of praise to the Lord. Make your life a living sacrifice, he said, Romans 12, 1 and 2. And my friend and I went back to our hotel room and we laid on the floor and we prayed together, Lord, we offer our lives to you, a living sacrifice. I'll never forget it. David's doing the same thing here and he's calling us to do the same thing and not be like his wife Michal who stands back in disdain and in scorn and in unbelief, fettered by her life, by her fears. You see, what we hold out to the unbelieving world is that in Christ... And in Christ alone, we can be authentically who we are. We can admit our brokenness and our weakness. We can admit our past and we can pray for his grace and protection in the future. Every other life other than the life in Christ that David models for us is a life of upholding a nightmarish lie till you die. Every other life is a web of nightmarish lies that we try to tell ourselves and we try to tell others about the sins we're keeping secret or the sins we're trying to hold on to. No other religion, no other philosophy, no other sexual ethic, no other set of values, no other worldview. But the worldview of biblical Christianity, faith in Jesus Christ alone, allows us to be genuinely who we are without fear and without shame. David's living without shame, unfettered here, and in contrast to the very fettered shame and unbelief of his wife. Third feast. Look at the feast that's on display Again, it comes from understanding this phrase before the face of the Lord. It's a bold gospel witness. First, second Samuel, rather six seventeen, And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. David brought the ark in. But he set up a tent for it because, to quote or paraphrase C.S. Lewis, the ark is not a tame ark. It's good, but it's not safe. No one can brush up against it and all of a sudden keel over dead. You can't go near the ark. It needs a tent around it to protect us from the power of the Lord breaking out and killing someone else. This glorious tent was also a place in which sacrifices could be made. It was the location where someone could come and say, Lord, I worship you. I adore you. I know this box is not you. They were not committing idolatry with this box. They simply recognized that God had declared his presence would be symbolized by this box. And indeed it was. So when the ark, the presence of God came back into Israel, it meant now God's forgiveness and mercy and grace are here. Sometimes I I come into Sunday mornings and I just long and cry out to the Lord yesterday and in the days leading up to the Lord's day. And then and then in the morning when we're singing and when we're preaching the word and when you're hearing it, I just long for people to hear the grace and mercy of God in a fresh new way. David was experiencing the, the mercy and forgiveness of God in the ark as it had been gathered to the people of Israel in Jerusalem. And so he said, Let's have a feast. Let's eat. Look at verses 18 and 19. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he distributed among all them the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat and a cake of raisins to each one. And even if that doesn't sound like your favorite menu. It still means miraculous blessing. Every child, every man, every woman. You get a cake of raisins. You get a portion of meat. You get a cake of bread. Enjoy it to the full because it's a sign that God is with us and his forgiveness is real. 70,000 people probably because there was 30,000 men. So with families, it was easy. 70,000 people. And this then is a stunning evidence of God's miraculous power. When we have lunch at the landing here, it's not just because of the good purposes of enjoying the chance to get to know each other. It's for that. But it's mainly to say we're following the biblical example of eating together because we are united in enjoying our forgiveness before God. We love being together. We're not trying to run away from each other. We're not trying to keep secrets from each other. We want to live life together. We want to be authentic together. We want to bless each other's crazy dances and other extravagant ways of pouring our lives out for the Lord. To just say to him, we're we're free and we're unfettered and we're feasting. We're trying, as God helps us to live out the Christian life. Christianity should not be hard and complicated and weird. It should just be this childlike freedom to say, let's eat. I brought the Frito chips today. Enjoy them to the full. They mean more than just empty carbs. (laughs) If you've been forgiven much, you want to dance much, praise much, thank much. If you've been forgiven much, you you grieve over those, even maybe of your household, who are so blind. And all they want to do is curse you and scorn you. You're vulgar, David. I'm ashamed of you. You're not acting like a king. At least not the king my father was. You long for their eyes to be open, but you can't let their blindness and their fettered faith, or lack of it, keep you from a bold witness. In fact, your bold witness might be the very thing the Lord uses to unfetter them. Finally, favored. Look at verse 21. Actually, I'm going to begin re- reading in verse 20 through 23 to get the whole picture of this final conversation David has with his wife Michal. Verse 20, and David returned to bless his household. Do you see that? He blessed all the people and now he's going to go back and bless his household. Michal should have been out there with everyone. She wasn't. He's going to go back and he's going to bless his household. But before he can open his mouth, he's scorned. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, again, we're told who she is, though we know fully who she is. Came out to meet David. Don't even come in this house. I don't even want you in this house. And with sarcasm and scorn, That is only befitting a fettered soul, she says, how the king of Israel honored himself today. You're a complete failure as a king, David. When you worship freely and fully with extravagant joy, dancing, a lifetime of savings poured out on the feet of Jesus in worship and praise, do not expect that every single person will approve. Recognize fully that unbelief will keep many from approving. How the king of Israel honored himself today, she says sarcastically, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants. As one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. There's profound irony here, isn't there? What would she have said if she stood before the. Son of David. Naked on a cross. And at that very moment, worshiping the Father as fully and perfectly as anyone ever could conceive. Fully obeying and honoring the Father with all extravagance. Is the cross too extravagant? Yet at the same time, while the son, Jesus, worships the father on the cross in the most extravagant act of worship conceivable. His act of worship. Offers to her. The cleansing and the forgiveness for the disdain that she has for him. Your mind breaks at such thoughts. She's unable to look at David and see the glory of God through his life all the way up to the face of God. She refuses to live Coram Deo before the face of God. David is living the authentic life before the face of God, and she hates it. She's not just indifferent to it and says, you be you, I'll go do my thing. She just hates it. She accuses him of lewd behavior and vulgar, shameless uncovering of himself. Look at David's answer. This is how you live deeply, authentically, powerfully, and purely before the face of God. This is how you do it. It's right here. Climax of the passage. And David said to Michal, it was before Literally, the face of the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house. David knows exactly what she's thinking. Who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel. The people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. Twice, he says, before the face of the Lord. That's the Hebrew in both times. They both mean the same thing. I am living my life, precious wife who despises me, before the face of the Lord because he chose me to do it. He made me prince over Israel. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. You think my dancing was extravagant? You haven't seen anything yet. I'm willing to die, as it were, David intimates. I will be abased in your eyes, like I was hanging on a cross. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the end of her death. Feel the weight of what the Holy Spirit is saying to us right now. This is the apex of this passage and much of the Bible. My forgiveness and the praise and extravagant worship it engenders... My freedom from being fettered, my feasting with God's people and enjoying the overflowing community of love we share together is all owing not to my being really smart and pursuing and picking God, but him choosing me. That's the wonder. That's the glory. That's the stunning mystery beyond all human knowing. That's what makes me so thrilled. That's what causes me to be so secure. That's what causes me to not need your approval, wife. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon describes this very event in a sermon I read earlier this week on this passage. He said, Dear brethren, there is great power in the truth of our election when a man can grasp it, when he knows for himself truthfully and by indisputable evidence that the Lord has chosen him. Then he breaks forth in songs of divine adoration and praise. Then is his heart lifted up and he pays homage to God with others who would not think of pain. The Lord Jesus has manifested himself to him as he does not unto the world. And therefore, he acts toward the Lord Jesus as the world can never act. And does what the world can never understand. I am going to speak to those of you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For you are chosen. Faith is the sure mark of election. Michal, having no children, of the day of her death is not always how God responds to unbelief, but it is how we respond sometimes. The point in this passage is clear. Saul's line is over. Don't look for another Saul, child. Saul's line is over. But Michal's fear is far worse than being childless, isn't it? She should fear the eternal wrath of Almighty God. She should fear what happens after she dies on the day of her death. Unbelief leads not merely to difficulties now, but unbelief in the lives of unbelievers have difficulties in order that God might use those difficulties to bring them to repentance before the day of their death. No evidence exists in the Bible that Mikael ever repented. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes how chosen ones live their lives. This is Colossians 3, 12 through 17, a very famous and familiar passage. But listen afresh. Listen to it in light of 2 Samuel 6. Listen to it in light of how David being chosen unfolded all the breakthroughs in his life. Listen, as you notice Paul's divine inspired writing. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. just like it did in David. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, just like David. With thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The authentic Christian life is freedom, it's being unfettered by unbelief, it's feasting, and it's being favored fully convinced that God freely in his sovereign grace chose us before the foundation of the world, undeserving though we be. That leads to an authenticity that says I'm not a phony. I'm real. In fact, I'm living the most authentic and real and genuine, united, shalom-like life I could ever imagine because everything inside of me comes out and outside in everything that I say and do. And whenever that doesn't fit, I ask God to forgive me and others if need be that my life will always be under the blessing and favor and and sweet presence of God, like like his presence is near us. It's like now I come and meet him, not inside a tent where there's a box inside that I can't touch. But now I come to the very presence of God and I meet him in a person, Jesus Christ, who, who put on a tent himself called human flesh in order that I could touch the human flesh and not die. And that human flesh could be broken, pierced, speared, nailed, and then risen for me in order that I might know God forever. Let's pray. Instruct us by David's life, Lord. Instruct us not just in the wonderful details of the passage that we pour over, but instruct us in all the glories of the gospel cover-to-cover Genesis to Revelation. Instruct us in what it's like to be authentic believers living out the life of faith in you in private and in public ways. I pray your blessing over every relationship we're in. Marriages, children, co-workers, bosses, online relationships, extended family relationships friends and ministry relationships. I pray that you would cause there to be such a zeal. Such a free, unfettered, feasting and favored zeal in us. That we could love others around us even when they don't approve of genuine love offered to them. That we could lavish our dancing worship and praise upon you even when we know others look on in scorn. And we could love each other well as God's chosen ones here at the landing. Caring well for each other. Weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. That you would cause such a plain, clear public witness that others who would come or, or, or brush past us might say, my, 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 how they love each other. What a God they must serve. What a breakthrough has occurred that they might love each other that way. You have much you are doing in me, Lord. You have much you are doing in this church, faith family. You have much that you are doing in each of our households, in our marriages. Take it the next step today, Lord. We want to press into you, banishing and despising the shame that says we're phonies. And live authentically before you. Help us. Help us, Lord. Pour out your spirit to help us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.